You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Should there be a thread that connects back to fiction? On this episode, novelist Bert Weisbord, and after the break, some random thoughts and observations. Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Partial Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. Off the top, my guest, Bert Weisbord, is a novelist, screenwriter, producer of feature films. His latest novel is called Danger in Plain Sight. In my opinion, he's a bit of a Renaissance man involved in the Paris art world and has taught English to college students in Thailand. Bert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, I'm a big movie person myself. I love the movie starring Tom Cruise called Jerry Maguire. In that movie, his love interest said, you had me at hello. Well, you had me at hello, because in the beginning of the book, there is a mention of Willie Nelson and yeah. one, of his fa- <laughs> one of his famous songs. So right away, I'm going to continue. Willie Nelson mentioned and also that song, Crazy, which I love to this day. So let's talk about the book and the way you started. And I'm going to mention a very famous writer. Graham Greene is famous for saying the opening paragraph is most important. Do you agree or disagree with that? I know that I, I spent a lot of time on the opening paragraph. I mean, I spent a lot of time really trying to communicate how I want people to come into the book. And yes, I agree with that. And we have to come back to talk about Willie Nelson before we're done. Well, I'll talk about Willie Nelson right now. It's just a conversation. I love Willie Nelson, in my mind, is a different kind of version than Bob Dylan. They're still creative. They're still doing it. And I love both of them. I worked with Willie Nelson at Universal on trying to make a movie out of Redheaded Stranger. Oh, his, love, it's a concept album. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a great experience. We used to go and listen to him in Texas and go to his studio and talk about the screenplay and uh, Universal didn't make it. And they actually went on to make it with him playing the redheaded stranger. But I was not involved in that production. Before I forget, once again, going back, you had me at a low later in the book. You mentioned Katz's Deli, Vanilla Aid Creams. Anybody who's been in New York City can relate to that. And also, if you're in New York City at a certain time frame, Jonas Schimbel's Cherry Cheese Knishes, which we used to call belly bombs. So I'm reading this book and I'm saying you had me at the beginning and you had me <laughs> later on. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you for that. Now, I, I'm a big fan of, of fiction and the connections to the world at large. And in a sense, just it's just my opinion. Fiction can be more truthful than nonfiction because it allows you to be more free. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I do. I mean, I I think a lot about the difference between writing screenplays and writing books. And it is true that in fiction and a novel, you really can do things that are different than life. I'm a big fan of thrillers and crime fiction. And I'm reading the book and I'm kind of saying to myself, I'm getting a little feeling of Daniel Silver in this book because your characters are multi-layered. You put them in very dangerous situations. But that's kind of what resonated with me in terms of some of the characters that you created. I describe my books as character driven thrillers. I mean, that's what I'm most interested in is stories that are driven by 
who the people are and how the people change. And it's the change in the growth and the self-awareness of people in the book that allows the story to develop. Now, as a writer, how do you create that? Because you can't jump in 100 percent. You've got to let, in my sense, the narrative kind of move along and flow. So at one point, do you realize that you need to develop your characters at a certain point in telling the story? Well, I always start by developing the characters before I develop the story. And I really think about who the people are. And I mean, in this book, Kelly, you know, at the beginning, she's pretty much shut down. She functions very well in her restaurant, but she doesn't go outside of it. And she doesn't have relationships outside of it. And it's very rigid. And a lot of the story is her becoming self-aware and her realizing that she can is not functioning at her potential. And I mean, the part of the book that I really like, because I don't know, it's been a great novel about the restaurant world. It's been a lot of nonfiction books. I mean, nonfiction books about that. I found that really interesting because I believe restaurants are a living, living, breathing universe on their own with a lot of rituals before they actually open. And it's almost like they're in the center of the universe and it's a constellation around them. And for me, I really enjoyed that part of the book, just describing her world initially as the story unfolds. Well, I'm glad you did. I mean, I write a lot about restaurants uh, and I actually wrote an article about restaurants in the Corey Logan trilogy, which is this three books that I've written in set in Seattle and Seattle restaurants are really interesting to me. And uh, it's very important to me to create a place of where the people are situated and have real personalities. And a restaurant is a good way to do that. Now, Ian Rankin's a very famous crime fiction writer, a terrific writer. He once said, if you want to learn about a country, a region, an area, a locality, read crime fiction. So what are you going to learn about Seattle in this book that you wrote? Well, Seattle's changed a lot. Uh, but I think that I try to capture the diversity of Seattle and the way Seattle is a place where people can go to sort of reinvent themselves. Right. And I think that's still very true. Now, you have a background which we're going to touch upon later in working in Hollywood. As a writer, do you think cinematically? Yeah. I mean, I don't do it consciously, but I clearly write things that are cinematic. I mean, I, people have described my writing as being like reading a movie. And, well, that's not literally true. I do think in that way. Just to find the term cinematic. I mean, I think I understand it, but I'm not going to make any assumptions that I'm totally accurate. So what does it mean to be cinematic in a sense? Well, it means to really allow people to experience what they're seeing and to make those transitions consciously. So that if you move from one sequence to another, you're aware of the change in scene. I don't know quite else how to describe it, but thinking of an example in Danger in Plain Sight, you you know, she goes to find cash at this sort of bar that he's working. And you, you go into that place and it's like being in a different world. And that's like a cinematic image of where she is and what. And when she leaves, it's also a transition that's very conscious. Now, the name of the bar, if I remember, is called The Dragon. 
So when you set up names of places and settings, how much thought goes into that? Well, you always want to do something that has some sense of the place. Yeah, yeah, I think about it a lot. Um, my guess is Bert Weisbord. The book is called Danger in Plain Sight. Now, there's a lot of things that I look at that just, I think, capture my attention that have can be extrapolated to what's going on in the world today. And you have a parable in that book, which is very famous. And it's about the scorpion and the frog <laughs> and human nature, which I, I don't want to mention names, but I think I can apply that to some people that are in our orbit and ethos of American politics right there. So I love that part of the book. You want to amplify on that? You know, I don't know exactly when I first heard it, but I've always been very captivated by that story about how the scorpion, it's his nature to do what he does and he can't change it. And uh, I thought that that was applicable when some of the people who are surrounded by Callie are trying to explain to her the kind of danger she's in and how rational approach to it may not necessarily work, but it's not going to change who the scorpion is. So it's time to be in the scorpion mode, so to speak. And the great Pete Hamill recently passed away. He was one of my favorite writers of all time. I get to spend some time with him in conducting about a half dozen interviews. And he once said, I write what I want to read. Do you write books that you want to read or you just write books to entertain the reader? I think I write books that about what I want to think about and hope that that will entertain the reader. I, I really like to create what I call a, a rich stew. I mean, that's how I form a story. You know, I just sort of create a group of characters and I don't know quite where they're going, but if the, it's what I call a rich stew, which means that there's conflict and there's complicated people. And I know that it's going to bring unexpected outcomes. And that's some of the excitement about writing. Now, movies are visual. Obviously there's dialogue and there's music, but they're really a visual process. What is your biggest strength in terms of a writer? Is it your eyes, your ears? I mean, what do you think is your biggest strength that you then put into what you create? You hear what you see, what you think, what you smell, what that kind of thing. I think my biggest strength is really sort of psychological internal life. It's my ability to communicate what's going on in people's minds, even when they're not aware of it, and address those questions. I mean, I think that I really think about why a person does what he's doing or she's doing and spend a lot of time thinking about the internal process, the interior life. And that's one of the things that you really can't do when you're writing a screenplay. That's curious that you have that response. So as a writer, when you're alone, let's say it's late at night, what is your thought process? Are you thinking about what you're creating or having these internal thoughts? Because I think about we have a lot of alone time in our lives. And as a writer, it's, it's a very solitary endeavor. If you think about that, it's you sitting down wherever you write and write. You know, movies are a lot different. It's collaborative. So internally, what is your thought process every day? Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, I think one of the most exciting things in Danger in Plain Sight, and it totally came out of my unconscious, was Callie's decision toward the end to kidnap Christy and save Cash, which is totally out of character for her. 
And I spent a lot of time trying to think, what can she do at the end to bring this to some sort of satisfying conclusion? And I didn't know when I started writing. I mean, this is something that came out, as you said, late at night, mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, what could Callie do that would be unexpected and exciting? And there it was. Another one of my favorite writers is James Lee Burke, especially the novels that set in the New Orleans area. And he has Dave Robichaud and Cleve Purcell, and they really are almost melded together and become one. I think when you look at Callie and Cash, the way they start out, but the way they end, they almost become, in a sense, and this is part of the process and the journey that you create in this book, they almost, in a sense, become one. I'm curious about your thoughts about that. That's very insightful. I mean, I think that that was one of my goals was to take two very different kind of people and make them uh, sort of function as one. And if I was able to do that, that's very satisfying. Now, another writer I sat down with, permit me to mention some other names. Susan Isaac's latest book is called It Takes One to Know One. And it's about, in a sense, one of the primary characters is a killer. And I had a discussion about her, about the psychology of killers and serial killers. And you've got a terrific hitman in this book. He's Casper Pinder. He's a really interesting character. And I'll refer back to James Lee Burke. Why Burke's books work, not because of the protagonist. He creates great, memorable villains. And that's what sells the books to me. And you have a really good, we have multiple uh, bad people in this book, but Casper is kind of unique in what drives him. I think you're right. I mean, I think that uh, he's one of the things that makes the book interesting. And he's a very scary guy. I think of Stephen King. Stephen King sometimes even scares himself. And that part of his brain fascinates him because he's, quote unquote, a relatively normal people, but he creates his really a, horrific scenes and characters. So where do you go as a writer to great people like this? You know, it's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer. I mean, I really I spend a lot of time thinking about who the villains are and making them multifaceted and again, complex. I mean, the bad guy in the Corey Logan first book, Inside Passage, the end of that book ends in a restaurant. And he, too, was a aficionado of restaurants. And he can't kill these people during the book. And at the end, he's in the restaurant where they are and he buys them a drink and he decides that there's they're just no way that he could ever understand these people. And it's a very satisfying ending to the book. And it comes from the fact that the the bad guy has real personality. I mean, there's someone there that you can relate to. And even though you don't like him because of this, you know, his work and what he does, you understand that he's complicated and has feelings and you care for him. So what you're saying is they have to be multidimensional and the heroes should be multidimensional, too. Now that Hollywood blockbusters, I think Stallone, basically they are who they are. But the interesting characters and even more so in the smaller films, the independent films, or the characters who are multi-layered. And that fascinates me to create that because yes, you want the book to be a page turner, but as a reader, I want you to challenge me and make me think. Is that important to you? 
Absolutely. And if I am able to do that, I feel like that's a success. But that's very hard. I mean, you know, there are a lot of books out there and a lot of good ones. And, um, and let me digress for a moment. The first thing I did when I was developing screenplays was go to Ross McDonald. And he wrote his only screenplay for me. And I worked with him and I would go up to Santa Barbara and we would go over the, it was from his book, The Instant Enemy. And I learned so much from him about writing unusual characters and secondary parts. And I still think about this when I'm writing my own people. How audacious is it to become a writer? People say to me, you've interviewed hundreds and thousands of writers over the course of your career, my career. And I, and why don't you write yourself? And the answer is very simple. I know how hard it is. You can sit down and have a concept and an idea, but a concept and idea are just part of the process. It really is very difficult. So what made you decide to sit down to do something that in a sense can be uh, scary? Well, you know, I never anticipated it. It's one of the great decisions with hindsight that I've made. But I was, you know, I produced movies and I, I worked with screenwriters. I worked with very famous screenwriters and that they kept coming back. So I realized at some point that I had some ability to, you know, develop screenplays, to develop stories, to have interesting people. And I tried my hand at a screenplay. The first thing I wrote was the really the the basis for the book of Corey Logan, and but I was golly, my first book was published in 2013. So that gives you some idea how recent it's all. Right, right. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest, and he's terrific, by the way, is the author of Danger in Plain Sight, Bert Weisbord. Now, I think once again, John Le Carrier. That's his, that's his pen name. He's had a fascinating background, and I believe in the world of espionage. And he draws upon that in creating these great books. I mentioned at the top in the introduction that you're a bit of a renaissance man. And in this book, and I wonder if you're drawing on true life experience, you seem to know a lot about money transfers and money laundering, smuggling, and also, quite honestly, good food and wine. So this, a fertile imagination... Or is this something in your real life experiences? I ran an investment company for many years. So I know a lot about finance, but a lot of that is research. A lot of that is really learning about what is happening contemporary. And so I wouldn't say I've ever done that, but I know a lot about it. Uh, food and wine, I've always been interested in. And I'm wherever I am, I'm trying restaurants and uh, and I lived in Paris in 1968 and 69. And although I didn't have the money to go to fancy restaurants, I sure went to a lot of small, wonderful restaurants. And that's where it started. So what was that life going back in the 60s in Paris? It must have been pretty exciting for a young man. Oh, it was it was wonderful. But, you know, 1968 is the, were the you know, demonstrations in Paris and, right, and the right. big uh, beginning of the 60s uh, stuff that happened in the United States. And I came right after and it was a little scary. There a lot of police everywhere, a lot of right. tear gas and unexpected. But it was very exciting to be around all these French people who were very interested in 
talking to Americans who could speak French, and I did speak French, uh, and talk about our experience. And it was, it, I still have friends from France, and I still uh, love that, that time. That was, but I was not, I wasn't even 20 yet. I just turned 20. And finally, then I went from Paris to Thailand, and I turned 21 in Thailand in 1969. I'm going to share a quick story about growing up in Paris. Um, James Jones wrote From Here to Attorney, the Finn Red Lines, which became terrific movies. I got to know his daughter, Kaylee Jones. She grew up in Paris, and in that apart- the apartment they lived in, all the great figures in that time frame in the world of literature were coming through that apartment. And she has great stories about growing up with all these great writers. A few of them were expats because the African-Americans are much more comfortable in various times in American history living in Paris and France than they were living in America. So that's also a really interesting thing about they valuing the American culture and ethos, but sometimes the people back home didn't value them. And that's fascinating time frame. I am very envious of that sort of experience and you're you're fortunate to have spent time with her they, they those were interesting times now i i do know a couple other writers i will mention also joseph cannon who's been compared to graham green some other great writers and he says that research is so important to the books that he creates now the good german was his book made into a pretty good movie very very good movie starring george clooney but he says he combines his research with his vacations so he loves traveling to various parts of the world because he's enjoying himself, but he's also coming up with ideas for his book. So in terms of you, you mentioned Thailand, you mentioned living in Paris, France. How important is your research? And did you travel much to create some of your books? Research is very important for me, but most of my books are set in and around Seattle. And uh, I lived in Seattle for a, a little over 20 years, and I really came to know it very well. Uh, but the research is just where I start. You know, I do a lot of reading and I do a lot of exploring before finishing the research. And certainly in Danger in Plain Sight, there was a lot of research to be done about um, money laundering and uh the whole business of people, and I don't want to give away the book, but the whole business of people uh, getting new identities and how that could work uh, took a lot of thought and research to figure out. And I once challenged a writer about where the book is set. And one of his books was set predominantly on Long Island and a lot of places he writes about great crime fiction writer, Reed Farrell Coleman, also lives on Long Island. And I said, you know, you're writing about places that I know. I've lived in those areas. I know the streets you write about. And I asked him, how does this book play in other parts of the country, other readers? Because the people on Long Island, the metro area, are going to know and relate to the areas that he writes about besides the narrative of the book. And he said, honestly, the settings are also characters. Do you agree with that? In the sense, is Seattle also a character besides a setting in your book? Yeah. Absolutely. And that's well put. I mean, I guess there are a lot of writers who don't spend as much time as I do about the setting. And people have said that I do that because of my film background, but I don't think so. I think that to understand the setting as being a part of the book is very important. 
And that's like it becomes a character. I do these interviews because I want to learn something. Every time I read, I want to learn something. Every time I have a conversation with people like you, I want to learn something. Not just about the book, what I call the art and craft of storytelling. And I learned this by talking to other people involved in movies and also books. There's something called compression of time. For people listening to this podcast, how would you define and explain what compression of time means in terms of creating stories and moving stories along? That's a really complicated question. And I actually just wrote something about the difference between that in books and in movies. I mean, like in a movie, you have a finite uh you have a couple hours approximately uh, to tell your story in a book. You can do it any number of ways with no constraints, except that you need to be consistent. I think you need to develop a grammar that people will accept. And you have to do that early on and you have to introduce it in a way that is understandable. You can't just do it randomly. Am I, am I answering your question? Yeah. I, in fact, to me, I, this is the what I call the pizza question. There's no bad pizza. Some pizza is just better than others. <laughs> so if that's the answer, that's that's fine by me. I, okay. I accept that. And I thank you for that. Now, also, I cut out little things in books that are going to mean nothing. So here comes the nothing question, Bert. On page 180 in the book, your character, Callie Jones, has now left Seattle, is now in New York City. We're not going to give the reasons why. We'll save that for the reader. But this is page 180, by the way. So bear with me and take it wherever you want to go. On page 180, she makes a 180 and leaves Seattle and goes and leaves New York City and goes back to Seattle. I imagine it's an unintended consequence. But I'm reading the book and I'm saying I love that part of it. I, knew, I don't think you planned it. But for me, thank you very much. because It allows me to throw out one of the meaningless questions that, that I do over the course of an interview. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was a perfect response. I just had to throw it out there because it was on my mind. It's in, in the questions in front of me. And bear with me. You handled it exceedingly well. And we, we will move on. So do you have any literary heroes, people that you would read yourself because you respect what they do? Oh, of course. Yeah, I do. Ross McDonald would be top of my list. I mean, I just learned so much from him and I still read his books. I mean, some of these books like The Chill are so memorable. I also like Scott Turow and have been very interested in what he's done. I like James Welch, who wrote The Indian Lawyer and some other books. Uh, and he's in a little different category. I like I don't know, James Crumley. And I mean, there's a long list, but I do, you know, Elmore Leonard, great fans. And I read them again and again. Yeah, and he has his rules of writing, by the way, which are famous. They really are. It sets up a ways the book should be put together. Not everybody can recreate his rules because he's Elmore Leonard. Let's let's be honest about that. He's in a he's a legend. He's a legend. I want to um, go back to a previous book, and I'll tell you why. You wrote a book called In Velvet, set in Yellowstone. Now, I'm a big TV fan of quality, episodic television, HBO, Showtime. But there's a series starring Kevin Costner called Yellowstone. 
And it is a beautiful part of the world. I love Kevin Costner as an actor. I think he's got range, quite honestly, in all the different roles that he's done. Dancing with Wolves was a great, great movie in my estimation. So we talked about the research question before. Did you actually go to Yellowstone to write this book? Or you just kind of created that, that world in your mind when you put the book together. So run with that one, if you don't mind. All right. Let me start by talking. I'm so interested that you mentioned Yellowstone, the TV show, which is now just finished its third series and right. will, will have a fourth series. I and a think. big cliffhanger, by the way, at the end. Unbelievable. A yeah. huge cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have developed huge respect for Kevin Costner because I do think that, first of all, I think it's a huge, it's a difficult commitment for a movie star like Kevin Costner to commit to a series of television, which he's clearly done. That's what he's doing for a and high, high quality uh, television and insisting. I'm sure as he's the producer, among other roles, that he clearly thinks a lot about what he wants this show to be like. And he's done a wonderful job, I think of doing something. I mean, it's a little bit like, I don't know, the, the Godfather for Westerns or something, you know, right, sort of, right. uh, it's not though. It's, it was a, uh, confusing to me at first. It's really not about Yellowstone though. The Yellowstone is the name of the ranch, but it's right. not in Yellowstone. Uh, now in terms of your specific question, I'm a fly fisherman and for years, I, I started going when my son was seven and my son is now 40 and I've done it for at least 30 years. Uh, and we would go to Montana and we would spend a lot of time in Yellowstone. And we spent a lot of time on horseback trips in Yellowstone and camping overnight and fishing in lots of the different waters in Yellowstone. And I became fascinated by Yellowstone and I became fascinated by uh, the culture that was so invested in well-being of animals. And that certainly is one of Yellowstone's most important features. And so the one of the main characters in this book is a woman who is a bear biologist. And this comes from a lot of research of me running around Yellowstone with bear biologists. Right. And... I've been to Yellowstone and you mentioned fly fishing and you are a movie person. The movie, a river runs through it. Also a great book. And you've got other scenes in the book. I believe water is very elemental. It, it speaks a lot, even though quoting James McBride, the color of water. And you have a couple of scenes that are very cinematic that take place on the water. Did you do that on purpose or it just was part of the development and the framework of you know, the story? I, it's a good question. I don't, I haven't really thought about it. I find myself doing stuff on the water a lot. And I think it's just because it's so compelling. I mean, I don't do it consciously. Now there's something also in the art of creative storytelling. I learned this once again, we talk to people like you, it's called suspension of disbelief. We didn't talk about the other, one of the other characters kind of draw uh, drives a narrative and that's Callie's ex-husband, who is a French journalist who kind of just shows up and then everything explodes from there. Now, he I want to give away too much, but he's injured, ends up in a hospital and then kind of escapes. 
Is that a part of what I would call suspension of disbelief? It really wouldn't happen that way. But in terms of telling the story, it had to happen that way. Yeah, no, I think you said it very well. I mean, I think I had to get him back to her so that she could deal with the issue of whether she wanted her son to meet his father. And that's really what motivates her to help her, which was an afterthought. Now, I'm going to switch gears because I said you've had a very, my estimation, a very, very rich life in terms of life experiences. Let's talk a little bit about Hollywood. Let's talk about initially what brought you to Hollywood, because that was kind of audacious, too, on your part. You know, it's a different time. And when I think about it now, I, I think it would have been much harder today. But first of all, it was a very exciting time in Hollywood. And, you know, this was when Marty Scorsese was making Taxi Driver, you know, and there were these great movies that right. were uh, driven by directors. Mean, St- mean Streets. Oh, terrific movie. Terrific great, movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was making educational films in Chicago. And I really liked it. You know, I just come out, I graduated from college and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I decided I'd like to try to produce movies. And, you know, I went out to Hollywood. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections or anything like that, but I was lucky. And with hindsight, I, I could say it was a smart idea. I decided to back writers and Writers were at the bottom of the totem pole in Hollywood at that time. And you could get a very good, you could get any writer to write a screenplay for Writers Guild minimum for a high budget screenplay was $9,600. Not even pocket change, but. Right. I mean, it's unbelievable that that's what it was. Uh, But in that time, it allowed me to go to great writers and make very unusual deals with them and work with them. And those screenplays that we developed often came out very well. And uh, that was the beginning. And I, I never looked back. I was, you know, producing movies by the time I was 30 years old. So it was went pretty fast. You have a great story about being in New York City with uh, Al Pacino. You want to share that story? Yeah, this was this is a real Hollywood story. This was a Freddie Raphael screenplay. Freddie wrote Two for the Road, Darling. I mean, he's a very well-known, glittering prizes. And we worked uh, and developed that screenplay. And eventually, Sidney Lumet agreed to direct it. And Al Pacino and Diane Keaton agreed to star in it. And it was... Uh, right after The Godfather. So those were very desirable actors and actresses. They're bankable so, in the terminology of the business. They are really bankable. That yeah, point. they were. And everyone was very excited because, of, you know, United Artists had gone through this big change where, you know, the people there, Mike Metaboy and well, all of them left. And there was a new cast of people there and they'd, fought with the, the owner of the studio. And we managed to put this together and I, I made all the deals. So it was very complicated because uh, this, I'm really going off track here, but I remember when this, the United Artists said it was going to cost too much money and I had to go back and renegotiate the deals for Al Pacino, Diane Keaton, and Sidney Lumet. Those are big deals. And uh, I got them all to come down and it all came together. And so Al Pacino decided that he wanted to do a reading 
And I came and Diane was there and it was all in uh, his office. And I actually read a small part with those two people. I'll never forget it. And uh, we had a great time. It was really a great experience. And all everything came together. Now I'm going to tell you the sad part of the story, which is th- there was an expression. There still is called pay or play. And that's when the studio agrees that they're going to pay the full salaries, whatever happens, whether the movie gets made or not. And that's when a movie really gets done. I mean, then, you know, because there's, there's a money commitment. Right. And it's a big one in this case. And my lawyer, who was a very well-known Hollywood lawyer, Barry Hirsch, and I had lunch at a Hollywood restaurant and the maitre d' brought a phone over to me and I never been called at a, at a restaurant and I, you know, I'm not that kind of person, but anyway, I, it was Sidney Lumet and it was Sidney Lumet saying that he was sorry, but, and this was the day that everyone's going to be pay or play at midnight. And this was in the afternoon oh, that he's gone to do Prince of the city because the former United artist people and his agent made this day, deal with the former United Artists people at Orion at that time, uh, which is a film that Sydney had always wanted to make and no one would finance. And they didn't want to see this big movie being made at United Artists and they succeeded. So that was a real Hollywood story for me. I want to mention one other name because I believe everybody needs a mentor in the terminology of the business, a rabbi. Um, Jacob Epstein. Oh, yeah. Talk about him because that's a name I didn't know. Nobody's going to know. But I think it's important to mention people like that who are not well known, but may be important to you. Well, I didn't even know how you know about Jacob. But Jacob went on to write, oh, the Hill Street Blues. He was the the cheap editor and writer. And he wrote a lot of L.A. Law. And uh, he's become a great screenwriter. And I'm actually doing two events on this book with Jake. One in Seattle at the Seattle Summit and one on Long Island and at the book review on, at Huntington. And I gave Jake his first deal or his first job in Hollywood. He was a writer for me. And this goes back to the 70s. And uh, I always liked him. We just kept in touch and we became good friends. All right. The last thing I'm going to ask you to do for me is. I learn when I leave these interviews and it's late at night the next day, I said, what? It was not a good question, but this is a question I should have asked and I didn't. I'm going to give you an opportunity to interview yourself in the course of the conversation that we had. Thank you so much. Is there a question that should have been asked of you and hasn't been asked? Oh, I, I thought you did a wonderful job, truthfully. I think that you really, there's a lot more things to cover. I think there's a lot to talk about what's happening and what happened in Hollywood and how all of the movies have changed and how these long form television shows have really become the new entertainment and the most talented people are uh, going to that, but you can't do everything in an interview. And that's not my specialty. I think you did exactly right to talk about danger in plain sight. Can I put my website up here so people can take a look at. Yeah. Yeah. Put the website up and we'll direct people to you that too. 
If they go to www.burtweisbord, B-U-R-T-W-E-I-S-S-B-O-U-R-D.com, and all the information is there. All right. Bert Weisbord is the author of Danger in Plain Sight. I'm Larry Davidson. This is Artful Periscope. We'll be back after the break. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. If you're just joining us, you missed a terrific guest, Bert Weisbord, who wrote a book, Danger in Plain Sight. So right now, you're going to have to indulge me and take a deep breath. It's a segment called Random Thoughts and Observations. And here's the first thing I'm going to throw out to you. I believe it's controversial, but I think a lot about this, especially in context of the world we live in right now, especially in the United States of America. Question, is the United States of America truly the United States of America? And question I pose, in certain times in history, especially centered around wars, 9-11, as a country, we are united. But right now, think of the bell-shaped curve. On each end, on one end is Antifa and the radical left. On the other end, on the right side, is the extreme right wing, white supremacists, essentially butting heads. So I can make a strong case that where you are in the political spectrum, the United States of America is not truly united. Now, I know that the country is always going to be opposed and have oppositions and different points of view. But usually in normal times, quote unquote, if they're ever going to be normal times, we agree to disagree. We debate. We come up with issues and we kind of work on a compromise. But right now, there seems to be no compromise. You're for or against the president of the United States. You're for or against Black Lives Matter. You're for or against the environment. So truly, at this time frame, this very important time frame, signposts in American history, I don't think we're really united. In the past, I've mentioned Lenny Bruce probably too many times, a very famous comedian. And he said, and this is a comedian coming up with his observation insight, when the Iron Curtain falls and the Soviet Union breaks up, which was the United States' primary enemy, democracy versus communism, capitalism versus communism, that the country's going to turn its hate inward. And I think he he was right about that. Now, I'm going a little further back in American history with Senator Joseph McCarthy and the Red Scare. And everywhere you turned, overturn a rock in entertainment, in politics, there were communists. McCarthy was very famous going after the hearings, the McCarthy hearings, um, with his, his list of, I have a, on this list 150 people that are known communists. He never showed the list. He never gave names, but that's, that was his shtick, if I can use a comedic term. That was his shtick. And the irony that, it, that affects me is fall of the Iron Curtain, going back further, the McCarthy hearings, that 
we've got some people in this country in the echelons of power that in a sense are coordinating with America's greatest enemies inside our own country, inside our own government. And we do know with book five of the Senate Intelligence Report, yes, 2016, that impact on the election. And they're doing it even more so now. And I don't want to say it's collusion because you can get in trouble. But in a sense, they are kind of coordinating with certain political figures and what the Russians want to do. President Trump believes in the chaos. And the Russians, quite honestly, yes, they prefer that Trump is reelected. But the bottom line is creating chaos in America. And if you look in the streets of Portland and now Kenosha, New York City, there is chaos. There is chaos. And this feeds into the Russian narrative. Because what do the Russians want to do? Putin wants to do. Who is a dictator? Essentially right now appears for life. They want to destabilize America, take us out of being the world leader with a certain morality and ethical standards. They want to weaken NATO. How do you weaken NATO? You weaken the United States of America, which is also right now having tremendous schisms in our own country. If the Russians can weaken NATO, they will strengthen Russia everything that it means to them. I remember there's a phrase. The phrase is, you get what you deserve. So this time frame in America, is this what we deserve as a country in terms of dismantling institutions and no longer paying fealty to what matters to what America is supposed to be as a country, as a standard for the rest of the world to look forward to. And right now there's a great debate about vaccines, whether or not they're coming out too fast and they will be viable two days before the election. And this is what I'll raise this issue. It's a philosophical issue. Will there be a vaccine to counter the infection that right now is affecting the American way of life. Because if you become a doctor, there's something called the Hippocratic Oath. And I'm kind of, I think maybe I'm paraphrasing or distilling it down to its essential basic thing. But the Hippocratic Oath says, do no harm. Will that be, that oath be eviscerated with the release of vaccines for political purposes to move the election one way or the other? Another random thought and observation going back to a great writer named George, George Orwell, who wrote Animal Farm. And if you were a kid in high school, you had to read it. Kicking and screaming, you probably were assigned that at certain point in the process of your public education. And I remember a line from that. And the line from that was, all animals 
are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. There's a great book out there that demands that you put the time in or listen to the interviews with the author name is Isabel Wilkerson. And she wrote the book called Cast, subtitle, The Origins of Our Disconnect. And this is where you kind of understand what America is going through right now with Black Lives Matter. And she takes it from the point of view of not that it's segregation. Segregation is more a byproduct. It's the caste system that has always affected America. And her analysis is fascinating. And I think about that because in one of my previous travels, I was in India, in various points of India, but it started and ended in New Delhi. And I remember coming out of the airport into the streets and the sights and the sounds are so dramatically different. The smell in the air uh, is obviously in, in India and New Delhi, it's very, very hot. And they've since outlawed the system, but the caste system was very prevalent for many, many years in, uh, in New Delhi. And I remember vividly on the way back there, the adventure that I was involved in, we all got together for a last meal in New Delhi and it was about 12 o'clock at night. And we we're kind of breaking up and going back to our various hotels where we were staying before I was getting on a plane with a friend of mine to go back to London and we're walking down the street and it's midnight and out of the corner of my eye, a white cow is just ambling down the street because white cows are sacred in India. But you see all the people sleeping and living on the streets in what their version of a rickshaw is. That's what they live in. That's a form of making money. But they, could, they can move people along from point A to point B. But all the smells are there because they burn dung to cook and for heat and everything else. And it was so visible about my thinking about, once again, about the caste system in America in terms of the premise of the book cast the origins of our disconnect because most of us, and I'm going to be very honest, don't have the time or the where for all to understand what America is and what it's based upon and why there are struggles in America, especially right now with the black lives movement. And here's the problem. And I'm going to raise this issue in a podcast in the future, addressing black lives movement. It's been co-opted. And that's where the violence comes in. The demonstrations, I understand, a lot of them are peaceful, and, and that's you're allowed to have peaceful demonstrations in America. But I think people are coming into Antifa. People are coming into the right wing. And, and you don't know who is who, and you're stimulating and creating violence. And therefore, the images that you see coming from Portland, going into the 100th day, the time that we're recording this podcast, and the images from Kenosha, and images of people that have been shot seven times in the back and a man in Kenosha, or now in Rochester, excuse me, a naked man was having a mental break and it has a bag over his head and eventually dies. And that's what the, the people see, the violence in the streets of America. But that's just a very small thing. But it's so visual, so visual that we jump upon that. And that's part of the political process. And that's what tribe you belong to. You, you believe what you want to believe and based on what you're seeing. And if we only took some time to take a deep breath, and if you don't want to read Isabel Wilkerson's book, there have been numerous interviews and newspaper stories about that. Just look that up right away. 
she tells a really interesting story. She's a reporter also for the New York Times, and she had an assignment to interview somebody in New York City. And she arrived on time to the interview, but the person she was going to talk to was late coming to the office. So she's sitting in the waiting room, and the guy walks in. He's about 10 or 15 minutes late, looking a little harried because he knows he's about to do an interview for the New York Times, which is a big deal to get that kind of interview and exposure. And he walks in, he sees her, and she gets up to greet him to explain why she's there. And he says, I can't talk to you. I can't talk to you. I can't talk to you. I'm about to do an interview with the New York Times. And he looks at her, says, you can't be. You're black. And can you show me some identification? And she'd done multiple interviews for the newspaper that day. And he said, give, uh, give me an identification, show me your license, show me this. But he finally says, show me your business card. And she didn't have a business card, business card from the New York Times. And he walked into the office again and saying, without saying, I don't believe you're the writer from the New York Times, the reporter. And she walked out, God bless her, and didn't do the interview. And he never got into the article. And I mentioned that because I had the pleasure of sitting down years ago with uh, James McBride, who wrote The Color of Water. And it was his memoir, because he is, was multiracial. And this is what I think about. Is the color of your skin an identifier and disqualifier to be a real American? Because most of us can get by if we are light-skinned. If you're dark-skinned, people look at you and make certain assumptions. So, once again, the color of water, the color of your skin. Finally, uh, last random thoughts and observations. What is a hero? How do you define a hero? Two days before we record this podcast, uh, Tom Seaver died. Well, in some sense, many senses, Tom Seaver was an athletic hero. Also dying recently was Chadwick Boseman. Rakanda, Rakanda forever. He was terrific in movies. He was Black Panther, by the way. He was terrific in movies uh, about Jackie Robinson, and he was great in the movie about James Brown. And, of course, recently passed away, John Lewis, and if you believe in being immigration is an ill for certain people on the, on the right, Stephen Miller is maybe your hero. Cops, firemen can be heroes. Protesters can be heroes. And dare I say, soldiers who are not suckers are certainly heroes in the history of this country. Essential workers are heroes. The medical community are heroes. But in my mind, there's one who stands above all in the pantheon of heroes. And that person is the person you and I will never, ever know. Because they just do something for the right reasons. Not to be recognized. Not for pats on the back. Not for a medal. That hero who should have their own monument or their own grave like the unknown soldier 
that hero is the righteous person. Maybe it's only one righteous person, but in my mind, that is the true hero. I'm Larry Davidson. And by the way, please pay attention. We talk about heroes. Pay attention to names at the end of the podcast. This doesn't happen without them. In my mind, in a very small way, those are the people I really trust and revere and respect. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her.